Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I'm joined by the formidable Mary Lou MacDonald, leader of Sinn Féin, now Ireland's official opposition, which makes her the first ever Irish female leader of the opposition. We discussed the issues that drove Sinn Féin's dramatic rise in this year's general election, including austerity, healthcare and housing, the impact of the pandemic on the Irish economy and Sinn Féin's proposals for a unification poll in the event of a no-deal Brexit. As always, a shout out to our amazing patrons. Your support is critical for covering the costs of producing the podcast. Without your help, we wouldn't be able to continue bringing you interviews with these amazing guests. If you've been considering becoming a patron for a while but haven't gotten around to it, please consider doing so now. Just hit pause and head over to patreon.com slash a world to win pod. If you become a patron, you'll get access to exclusive content, including full-length interviews with amazing previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, as well as a chance to influence the future direction of the show and exclusive offers on merch, my forthcoming books and subscriptions to Tribune. If you want to support the show in another way, please do head over to iTunes and give us a rating to keep us up in the charts. And share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. A big thank you to the Lipman Miliband Trust for providing us with the grant funding we've needed to bring you these first episodes. You can follow them on Twitter at Lipman Miliband. And another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who've let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. Now, here is Mary Lou MacDonald on the Irish government's response to COVID-19 and the need for more effective measures to tackle the economic impact of the pandemic. Hello, Mary Lou MacDonald, and thank you so much for being with me on A World to Win. Right, so we're going to kick off the show by discussing a couple of different news stories this week. So the first one is from the Belfast Telegraph, uh, which is that there's going to be major disparities in the impact of COVID-19 on the Irish economy. Um, So yeah, I mean, as we've seen in many other countries, it looks like there's going to be a significant increase in unemployment and the, the impact of the virus is going to be very acute for those in the kind of lowest income brackets. So what's your view on what uh, the government should be doing and indeed what Sinn Féin would be doing in order to kind of contain the economic impact of this virus? Well, intervene, I think. I think that the first the first step is to accept and to understand economically the dynamic of what's of what's happening. So on the island of Ireland, for example, the big multinationals, many of the large corporates really haven't suffered economically at all. In fact, if, if you look at the tax returns for the southern state, for the Republic, and you, you, you ask, well, what's happened here? What you notice is that there, there wasn't actually a huge job drop in, in uh, tax revenues, uh, even though an awful lot of jobs had been lost. So what that tells you is that jobs have been lost in the domestic economy, on the high street, in the service industries, in retail, in hospitality. And a lot of the jobs that have been lost would have been lower paid, some of them insecure, lots of them held by younger people, by women. And it's those sections of our communities and society that will be worst impacted without a doubt. So that means that government policy has to very proactively understand that and step into the breach to nurse 
our society and our economy through what is an incredibly difficult scenario. So many of the things that have happened here, like, for example, cutting the pandemic unemployment payment was crazy at a time when, for public health reasons, the state has to intervene as a matter of last resort to tell some sections of the economy that they simply cannot function The banks um, have gotten away with uh, bad behaviour again. I mean, they had some mortgage breaks for three months, then it was extended to six months, but that's off the table now. And it's business as usual, they tell us, uh, the lenders and and the banks. So I I think in the North, our, our efforts are complicated by the fact that because Ireland's partitioned, Um, The Belfast administration has to look to London. Um, And I I think we can fairly say that in the Tory government under the leadership of Boris Johnson, we do not have an administration that is responsive or receptive to the needs of of young and lower paid and poor people, frankly. So we are going to have a big challenge across the island to kind of fashion the right response. It's budget day here in Dublin tomorrow. Uh, We launched our budget proposal last Friday um, and we'll see what the government comes up with. But we're very clear that there are particular measures to support workers and families, to support community, to ensure that businesses that were viable before this public health catastrophe actually get assistance so that they can live to fight another day on the far end of this and then, of course, we need big investment in our in our public health service. So it's a big agenda. It's a wide agenda, but it's one that has to have a real understanding of the necessity for social cohesion at its core. And governments need to understand that social cohesion requires resources and governments have to put their money where their mouths are. If we are all in this together, which we have been told, let's face it repeatedly, well, let's see the evidence of us being in in this together. In Ireland, lots of people are now saying, you know what, it's not so much that we're all in this together. We we might all be in the same storm, but we're in very different boats. Mm. And I think that would be (laughs) possibly the most accurate summation of where we're at at the minute. Yeah, I couldn't have put it better. So the next story that we have is from The Guardian, and it's Brexit. Ireland needs to press for reunification vote, says Sinn Féin. Uh, Now, this is obviously all about the impact that uh, Brexit is going to have on uh, kind of relations with the Republic and Northern Ireland, potentially with the imposition of a hard border, all those kind of, you know, terrible things that we're potentially looking into in, in the future with the government that we have in the UK. Um, so, but do you believe that there would be, I think I know the answer to this question, but do you believe that there would be support for a poll on reunification in the event that a hard border was imposed? And if so, you know, how would Sinn Féin propose to manage the tensions that that could create, both within the island of Ireland and with Westminster? So we cannot countenance and we cannot accept that there will be a hard border on our island. It's as simple as that. And that's why we have been so firm in arguing for respect uh, for and adherence to the terms of the Irish Protocol. Brexit is bad news for us, uh, Grace, and, and, and there is no happy ever after. There's no good ending to this story. 
Um, we, we've been very clear on that from, from the get-go. And by the way, I, I say that from a, a political perspective of somebody who would be deeply critical of the European project and its direction. I know it's lost its way, but I also know that a Tory Brexit was never the answer to that dilemma. But in any event, we insist that the protocol is respected because it contains the bottom line, the bare minimum that we need on this island to keep the lights on, to ensure the trade can continue seamlessly across the island, and also to ensure that the foundations of the Good Friday Agreement and the peace process aren't undermined. So we need to stick with that. And I have to urge all concerned uh, across the water in London and beyond, anybody who thinks that it's wise to move legislation that that clearly breaches international law and creates such jeopardy for your next door neighbour, I would just ask you, please think about that again, because the, the peace that we have now, the democratic dispensation that we've built together is too precious and should not be the victim of Tory Brexiteers or extreme English nationalism or or political game playing. I think it's too precious for all of that. So what I think is that the provision for a referendum on Irish unity is uh, contained in the Good Friday Agreement. It's not a controversial thing to say, or it shouldn't be, that we want to exercise that uh, right but you're, you're bang on to say, Grace, that there is a lot of preparatory work that needs to be done. So I'm not calling for a referendum on Irish unity tomorrow or next week. What I am saying very clearly now is begin the preparation now, because all of the indicators, Brexit aside, COVID-19 aside, all of the indicators in terms of the unionist electoral majority being gone, the change in demographics, but the change in politics and political expectations of people, particularly younger people right across our island, those are realities. And those are changing the terms of politics and political engagement across Ireland. And the constitutional question is on the table. So burying your head in the sand is not a smart or a responsible response to it. So Is there big work to be done? Absolutely. But can we do it? Yes, we absolutely can. The prospect of Irish reunification is the opportunity of our generation to fix things that are broken in our economic model, in our social model. It really is a huge, huge opportunity. And I want us to have a conversation that recognises that and that doesn't posit the question in a way that is threatening or in a way that is seen as, you know, one side triumphing over the other. And can I also say, Grace, a united Ireland is the best bet for our neighbours in Britain. It's our best bet to have a good relationship. It's our best bet to have sustainable, you know, sustainable relationships and with each other. So, yes, it can happen. Yes, it will happen. And we need to prepare for it now. I'm really happy to have you on the show to talk about these issues because some of the people listening to the show may know, some may not. There's obviously quite a lot of kind of ignorance about Irish politics in the UK, but you you know, the island has been going through obviously a a huge political upset basically because the two major parties that have dominated Irish politics for decades, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gáil were kind of routed really at the last election. And whilst they obviously managed to form this this grand coalition, it was Sinn Féin, the party that you lead, that achieved 37 seats. That was really the kind of, you know, the big surge, the big story in that election. 
And you've obviously become leader of the opposition as a result. Now, for those who haven't been following Irish politics recently, that may come as a surprise. And, you know, obviously we've been talking about all these issues around reunification and historically Sinn Féin, um, I think in the minds of many people watching this from over the, the sea will be, you know, that will be their core issue. But I think it's also fair to say that given the trajectory of Irish politics and particularly the Irish economy over the last 10 years, there are a lot of other issues that are responsible for the rise of, of Sinn Féin as a, a basically a kind of left wing insurgent force. So I'd really like to hear your thoughts on what was responsible for this massive upset and for your you know, amazing success. Well, I I think that the fundamental tone of the general election past was a desire for change. Now, some people would suggest, you know, some analysts would say, well, you know, people were unclear. It was just change as, as a catch cry or change as rhetoric. Actually, nothing could be further from the truth. People were really, really concrete in terms of the change that they wished to see. The issue of housing. Mm. is is just I, I couldn't overstate how central that issue is in terms of public policy and public sentiment and um, the issue of decent work the issue of secure employment back to the basics as they say of a fair day's pay for a fair day's uh, work and um, all of these things very concrete tangible things arose in the course of the campaign but something else happened as well I think finally, after almost a century of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and then Fine Gael and Fianna, you know, passing each other like a relay race of whose turn is it now? In the last election, the prospect of a real alternative emerged and an appetite for a real alternative for different government, for, for government that isn't in hock to vested interests government that uh, is is brave enough and kind of innovative enough to to do things differently, to unapologetically say that we wish to form and lead a government that is for the ordinary, as we would say here, five-eighths, the ordinary Joe Soap, that where every city, that we actually honour our mission as a republic, because in a republic citizens have rights, and in a republic citizens are equal, and we shouldn't operate to kind of hierarchies or you know, the insiders and the outsiders, the entitled and the rest. We need a good, good, healthy dose of equality, the politics of equality right across our island. And I think people became very energized and very excited by that. By the way, Grace, I now lead the opposition. I'm the first woman to ever do so. Just think about that. Amazing. More than 100 years, more than 100 years for, for that to happen. So that's not lost on people either. There's all of this kind of, this blend of um, just very interesting new thinking and new politics and new people involved in politics, which I think is really exciting. And all of that amounted to a fairly seismic election result for us, but we didn't make it into government. And that's a source of great disappointment for ourselves and for, for the people that we, that we represent um, and, and so we prepare ourselves whenever the next election comes to go and to present ourselves again. I have an incredibly talented team of people. If they hear your podcast, they'd be delighted to hear me describe them as such, but very able people. Um, and we're ready. Like we, we are ready to be in government uh, in Dublin. So it's, um, it's kind of exciting times. 
I want to pick up there on one of the issues you mentioned, which was housing. Some people listening in, you know, for example, London can imagine the extent to which, particularly in the wake of the financial crisis, housing has become a political issue. But I think it's fair to say that in Ireland and in, well, particularly in Dublin, but throughout Ireland is unique in the political salience. And actually in the kind of the extent to which a kind of incredibly extractive financialized housing system has emerged really over the last several decades. I mean, I think, you know, the things that you hear about the way in which vulture funds like Blackstone in the aftermath of the financial crisis were able to buy up huge swathes of real estate at low prices and then just jack up rents to the extent that, you know, you have this massive standards of living crisis, you have a homelessness crisis, and it has just become one of just a, a massive political hot topic. I'm interested as well in, in the resonance of this today, because obviously as people's incomes fall during the pandemic, this is going to become even more of a challenge. And we're again seeing moves by some of those vulture funds to say, let's raise money so that we can go back into these markets that have done so well for us so far. Yep. So what are some of the policies that you think need to be implemented in order to tackle this just like massive gaping source of inequality? So, I mean, you've described the, the scenario here better than I, than I could myself, per, perhaps, and it is to the great shame of government here that they allowed those vulture funds to feast on the carcass of, of Irish hardship in the way that they allowed. I mean, that, to, to me, as a citizen, not to mind as a political leader, is profoundly unethical. In fact, I regard that as immoral. Mm -hmm. And the retreat of the state and the um, triumph of the private developers and of corporate landlords has meant not alone soaring rents, I mean, eye-watering levels of rents in Dublin in particular, as you say, Grace, but not only in Dublin and not only in Limerick and Cork and Galway and the cities, but, but beyond that into the commuter belt um, has meant that people who are at work sometimes people with two incomes coming in struggle to meet their rent. It it has also meant that an entire generation pretty much has been locked out so far of any real expectation that they might someday own their own home. It's considered now, you know, an extravagant, faraway uh, dream. And the response from successive governments now has been depressingly predictable. The basic message here is that the the state needs to become a player again in the provision of housing, social housing or council housing, as we would call it, but also affordable houses to purchase and affordable rental. And there are models of good practice of this, as you know, right across the world, uh, right across Europe in particular. But the governments have turned their faces uh, away from this. Let me give you an example of one of the examples of of what's in vogue now in my home city here in Dublin, this uh, approach that they call co-living, I think you have it in your cities Mm. in Britain as well. So these are glorified tenements. I Mm. mean, they're shiny and new now, but the idea that you would pay astronomical rent to have a, you know, a living space that's the equivalent of a car park space is to my mind, just unbelievable. 30 and 40 people sharing kitchens and and other accommodation. And what makes it all the more appalling now in COVID-19 is that we know from a public health perspective, not alone is that not desirable, it's dangerous and it's wrong. Um, And yet 
we have hundreds, thousands of these uh, units now coming through the plan, coming to fruition in Ireland at a time where we have a housing crisis, we have an affordability crisis, we have a public health crisis. So what does that tell you? It tells you that the system and the establishment haven't heard us clearly enough yet. They haven't heard. The, so the policies are, are about, they're about state intervention. They are about local authorities being empowered financially, but also technically in terms of procurement processes and so on to actually get out there and and build the houses. It's about ensuring that uh, housing associations and bodies, accredited bodies can play their part. It's also about, yes, private development. That has its place. We're not trying to we're not trying to get rid of that entirely. But that cannot be the primary and singular response because we know that when you commodify the right to a person's home to that extent, you leave people homeless. I mean, it's and, and we are we are a, a case study in it, in it here. It was the big issue, Grace, in the last election. And I think for a huge, sizable section of Irish public opinion, it's still the big issue. And here's the interesting thing. When you, when you break it down demographically and you go to younger people, it, it, it's, it's cr- across all classes. So this is a generational injustice as much as a class one, if, if you know what I mean. And it's something we're determined to get to grips with. I I said to people after the election that we're not going to tolerate another five years of what people have been through. And I'm serious about that. So certainly fast forward to tomorrow on budget day, housing is is one of the issues that the government is going to have a a big, big challenge. We will be challenging them and we will continue to challenge them on that. Another big issue, obviously, in Irish politics is healthcare, And I'm sure that this is only going to become more salient as the pandemic goes on, because you don't have a fully socialized system of health provision that's free at the point of use in Ireland in the way that we do in the UK with the NHS. And I know that there have been some moves and proposals from Sinn Féin to move towards that system. So, you know, do you think that is something that is even more necessary now as we as we move into the later stages of this pandemic? Oh, absolutely. And uh, we, we got very cruelly exposed when COVID-19 struck. All of the shortfalls, mm. all of the lack of capacity, the lack of public investment, all of that came home to roost in a way that was really, really shocking. So uh, we, we have to respond to the crisis. But the only way that the system could provide the kind of safety net and capacity that was needed was to stop all other non-COVID care. I mean, obviously, that's a not a, a desirable or a sustainable approach, but you're right. I mean, we, we got caught, and, and decades now of underinvestment in public medicine and a favouring of private health care uh, got very badly exposed. You do know that Ireland is second only to the United States of America in terms of private health care insurance. Mm. And there's a reason why people take out those insurance, not that people are kind of craving, you know, or, or that people have, you know, a problem with the concept of public health. But, but the reality is that because the system has been so badly resourced and planning has been so poor, that, that you know, working people say, well, you know, if something were to happen, if heaven forbid somebody were to fall ill, mm-hmm. you want to know that you've done your best for your family and that you can access the medical care that you need. What we need on the island of Ireland is an Irish National Health Service. That's what we need. That means disentangling the confused two-tier and extremely expensive 
healthcare model in the South. And it means reimagining and recasting the NHS in the North because we have that socialised model north of the border, but it's, it's terribly badly under-resourced. I mean, one of the, one of the first things that the, the Assembly and the Executive had to do when it was established in Belfast, re-established almost a year ago, was to move to secure pay parity for healthcare workers. And I, I was out on the picket lines in, in, in the north with them on a, on a couple of occasions with workers and chatting with them about the cost of agency workers and the lack of resources. All of the story you hear in the north is replicated in the south. And I'm going to guess that it's replicated across the, the NHS right across Britain, I'm, I'm imagining. so. But yeah, it's a big challenge. We have a programme in, in the south that's cross-party at least on the face of it, everyone's signed up to it. It's called Sloinche Care. Sloinche is the Irish for health. The notion is that you move towards a fully public model of healthcare. The government has kind of reneged and isn't hugely enthusiastic on it, but we have that as a platform for reform. And then in the north, my colleague uh, Michelle O'Neill, when she was health minister, commissioned a report on reform of healthcare in the north called the Bengoa report. So we actually have two really interesting thought out platforms for change. The art in this would be to join them up because you're only going to get really, really top notch, top class public health provision when it's organized and resourced island wide. But that's a big item on our agenda for sure. Now, a lot of these issues obviously um, can be traced back to the financial crisis I suppose you could also argue the pre-crisis boom, but also the austerity program that was imposed on Ireland after it was forced really to bail out the banks in the wake of that huge uh, meltdown. Do you think that the government, obviously, you know, Ireland was in an incredibly difficult, difficult situation at that point with a banking system that was so huge relative to the rest of its economy. But do you think that the government could have done more to try and resist that austerity program that was imposed by the Troika? And should it, you know, the government have expected more from a financial system that had received so much in public support? Well, yes, and yes is the answer to those two questions. I mean, we're we're very well aware that when the, the Troika came to town and when austerity became the order of the day, um, that the resistance that was necessary or even the creative thinking because we had a problem. I mean, there's no point in pretending mm. otherwise. Um, we, we were in a very deep difficulty. But if you have a government that is not ideologically affronted by the notion of austerity, if in fact you have a government and administration that thinks on balance, you know, austerity, we, you all partied. So here's now, here's now the, the hangover of that and that was very much the approach of government. It was an approach that was about bailing out financial institutions above all else and irrespective of the cost. And the ordinary citizen picked up the tab. And the truth is, and it's very sad, really, um, for many, many people, they were just about coming to terms with or healing after that crisis when lo and behold, along comes mm. COVID-19 and Brexit and the combination of the two. So the, the damage that has been done is real and it's deep and it's still, much of it still endures to this day. This time round, so far, the international mood music is not so far for austerity. Even the IMF, our friends in the IMF are saying, borrow, invest and stimulate. 
grow your way out of this crisis. Don't try to cut your way out of it. And of course, that is always the sane and the decent, um, civilized way to deal with with a, a financial crisis. That's the rhetoric so far. So I think that's kind of encouraging so far. But let's have a health warning here. That may not always be the case. And we might face ourselves face again into a scenario in Ireland and beyond where austerity, the austerity hawks take out their claws again. So, yeah, obviously a lot of the other countries in Europe that experienced the kind of strong arm of the Troika now have thriving left-wing oppositions or even governments. And a lot of the kind of vibrancy behind those movements has been around this idea that we need to resist austerity. And today there seems to be this growing consensus amongst those left parties around Europe and indeed around the world that something along the lines of a Green New Deal, which would involve resisting austerity, like you said, investing in order to get out of this crisis, whilst also trying to put these economies on a more sustainable footing for the future. Yeah, that kind of seems to be this big idea that is uniting much of the left right now. And I'm wondering what you and what Sinn Féin thinks about that. Yeah, I mean, we, we would share that approach. And I, I think the interesting thing now internationally or across Europe to, to take our own continent, firstly, I think there is a very strong identifiable commonality of analysis and approach. And it's it's not just that we agree as to what went wrong or what is wrong. I think much more importantly and a much more empowering reality is that we share ideas and prescriptions to, for what the right way forward is. So I think that's really, really encouraging. I think we should also note that all in sundry, it's like motherhood and apple pie, everybody will pay lip service to a Green New Deal, you know, to green politics. And, you know, it's all wonderfully wonderful the reality is, can we get to climate justice? Mm. Can we get to a just transition? Can we actually make this great leap forward in a way that liberates working class people, that liberates all citizens and doesn't punish people who are less well off? This can't be the preserve of what we would call here the yummy mummies and the, you know, the well-heeled liberal middle classes and and the corporates, you know, this has to be an agenda that is about, yes, that is about emissions. Yes, that is about the environment and climate. Absolutely, of course, our survival depends on this. But this has to be about the liberation of people and communities as well. And the great thing is, if we act together, um, I actually think we can achieve all of those things. So I'd regard this as a time of challenge for sure but really huge opportunities for parties and people and activists, the activists on the ground, the grassroots movements right across Europe. I think this, this can be our moment if we have the discipline and if we have the, the cohesion to actually grasp it. And I really hope we do. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of A World to Win. We had a shorter episode for you this week, but we packed in a lot of content and I hope you enjoyed it. If you head over to Patreon, you can get access to our full back catalogue of interviews. And if you subscribe this week, you'll be able to take part in a special Q&A with me over Zoom. Solidarity to our listeners all over the world. See you next week.